The Athletic. Hello, I'm Matt Slater, and welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. As Premier League side Chelsea continues to look for new owners, at the time of recording, the bidders are all waiting to hear if they've made a shortlist. Later in the pod, we'll speak to the chair of Chelsea Pitch Owners, the company that holds the freehold of Stamford Bridge Stadium and the name Chelsea FC. But first, following on from last week's pod that looked at the role of Russian money in football, this week we'll look at the impact of investment from Saudi Arabia. And that's in a range of sports, including football, boxing, WWE, golf and Formula One. Now, I'm joined by Professor Simon Chadwick, who is the director of the Centre for Eurasian Sports at the Emlyon Business School. And he's an expert on sport and geopolitics. Well, look, Simon, thanks so much for joining us. We're obviously talking to you because of Saudi Arabia and sport is very much has been in the news for, for quite some time and is back in the news again uh, around golf, but around bits of football teams of you know Chelsea, obviously. I just want to kind of roll it back. Uh, you're an expert on the area uh, and on, on, on sport and how um, nations use sport. What, what is what Saudi Arabia trying to do here? It's trying to do lots of things. I, I, I think the view that you can somehow distill it all down to one reason is 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 an oversimplification. Um, I think there's a lot going on. The reality is, is, is that Saudi Arabia has got a lot of money. Obviously, that money is, is derived from oil and gas principally. I, it, it's something crazy, like between 60 and 70 percent of, of national income is derived from oil and gas. So the economy is is hugely over-dependent upon oil and gas. We know that globally, there's a, there's a kickback uh, against the use of oil and gas, particularly oil. On that basis, Saudi Arabia is, is somewhat exposed. It's somewhat vulnerable. And so it's it's seeking to 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 build its industries beyond oil and gas, and and to be able to generate revenues and, and boost national income and increase national growth from non-oil and gas sources. So that's one thing that's happened that, that's happening. Saudi Arabia is looking at it at its neighbours, um, particularly Qatar and, and United Arab Emirates, and and let's be honest about it, Saudi Arabia has fallen behind. It's much smaller and historically less powerful neighbours. Um, so it wants to compete. And, and so we are seeing football club acquisitions and Formula One races and lots of other developments that are not dissimilar to, to its neighbours. These countries are also going through a process of change, socioculturally changing. In Saudi Arabia, again, it's something crazy, like 70% of the population is under 35. And this population was born has never known the world without the internet, has never really known the world without social media. You know, they're, they're into vans and skateboarding and you know, just pretty much like the rest of, uh, of, of other 35-year-olds around the world. So I think sport too is seen as a way of being able to engage these younger people. And dare I use the word, word control? I mean, obviously, I have a very laissez-faire approach to, to sport, um, I think the Saudi Arabian government does want to retain a degree of control, whatever that degree is. And so they would be rather engaging under 35s as opposed to letting the free market or liberal liberal Western values en- engage those under 35-year-olds. And, and, and that, I think, is another part of this is, by my estimates, 
the Saudi Arabian government has got to be spending at least a trillion dollars, if not more, on sport and sport-related projects. Now, you, know, you imagine going to, to Boris Johnson and saying, OK, Boris, you know, even spend a billion pounds on sport. He's going to say, well, we don't have the money. And if we do have the money, we're going to spend it on healthcare." Whereas in Saudi Arabia, that's exactly the situation that you do have. So the government doesn't have to fight elections. They don't have necessarily have to make that, that democratic trade off between healthcare, schools and sport. And so what they're doing is they're, they are spending big, big money on sport and sport related projects. And clearly that doesn't just have economic and industrial benefits. It has political benefits, too. And, and we then get into the whole area of nation branding and soft power and diplomacy. Uh, clearly, many people across the world have preconceptions about Saudi Arabia and who they are and what they do and what they're all about. And, and one of the things that sport very often does is, is to help address some of those preconceptions and, and some of those established notions that people have in their minds. Whether we call it soft power, and, and soft power is the power of attractiveness, is, is one question. Is, is it soft power? Because, of course, other people would say, well, it's actually not soft power. It's, it's sport washing. It's something else. Um, but nevertheless, clearly what the Saudi Arabians are trying to do is, is to change the way the world sees the country and its people. I'm glad you reminded me of Formula One because, of course, that's it's this coming this weekend, isn't it? In that trillion dollars or maybe in, in a timeline, could you explain how Saudi Arabia has pivoted to sport? What are the, what are the kind of key steps? What are its big investments? I think crucially about Saudi Arabia is, is you know, this is not the United States, so it's not the market di that dictates what happens next. Um, in Saudi Arabia, it is the state. And so the state, I think the state has been really significant for several reasons. Obviously, we, we, we have a relatively young guy, Mohammed bin Salman, who is arguably more in tune with this 70% of, of the population that is aged under 35. He has a much greater sense or stronger sense of what they want and, and, and what they're looking for. And, and I think he, he also understands that there's almost like a, an internal soft power to appealing to them for, for support. And, and you know, certainly the young Saudi Arabians I've spoken to, you know, they, 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 they think the world of Mohammed bin Salman. They think he's a great guy, very progressive, running the country in a very different way. But deep within that, there are some fundamental problems for, for Saudi Arabia. Um, one is the role of women, as there have been calls from younger members of society to be a more open, progressive society. One of the ways in which... Uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, and the Saudi Arabian government generally have seen that they can effect some sort of changes is, is by promoting sport to 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 um, address some of those sociocultural issues. So, you know, for instance, we've seen Saudi Arabian female gyms opening up over over the last three or four years. Um, we've seen Saudi Arabian female football teams being established and, and so forth. But there's also something too about the spirit of free enterprise and, and entrepreneurship and creativity, because in Saudi Arabia it, it is definitely a case of big state. So basically, the, the the state will look after you. The state will give you money. The state will spend on hospitals. After all, this is a country with a huge amount of uh, of money that drawn from oil and gas. One of the things too is is sport is being used to to change the, the, the kind of economic and economic and commercial culture of, of Saudi Arabia. And, and so what you will see is, you know, young entrepreneurs possibly starting sports tech start, you know, startups and you know, running event management companies and this kind of thing and not relying on the state, you know, actually running their own businesses. That's been a, a prevailing undercurrent. And I think it still is an undercurrent, the issue of, of the issues of religion 
um, gender and, and, as I say, I kind of the spirit of enterprise. But otherwise, if you go back to the, the, the kind of mid 2010, so 2014, 15, uh, initially plans were announced for um, Saudi Arabian football clubs to be privatized because many of them are, are state owned, very much on the basis of you, know, you shouldn't rely on handouts from the government anymore. What you should be doing is, you know, look at those British clubs or look at those Spanish clubs. And, you know, they're thinking about how they generate revenues and how they control their costs. And so I, I think there was a view that that by instilling that kind of business discipline or commercial discipline by privatizing these clubs somehow the clubs would would grow and develop and and would be more efficient organizations and that would be replicated through sports so then you kind of fast forward through to uh, kind of 2016-17 into 18 and in addition to some of those uh, societal changes that the the government has sought to, to effect you've then got a whole host of events suddenly start heading out to Saudi Arabia. Um, there's a whole long list, I guess, for many people, certainly in Britain, for many people, I guess, them, them, the most obvious example is you know, Anthony Joshua fighting in, 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 in Riyadh. And that's possibly the first time that many people had woken up to what we now have. But of course, in addition to that, if we take motorsport as an example, you, you, you have Formula E has, has now got a race there and, and has had a race for several years. The Paris-Dakar rally um, is not actually running in, in, Par- in Paris or Senegal. It's running Saudi Arabia. And then you've got the Formula One Grand Prix. You then come out, come out and into combat sports. And it's not just boxing bouts. You, you've also got mixed martial arts and WWE uh, regularly visiting Saudi Arabia. Beyond that, you, you've got this appetite for event bidding. And so looking, looking ahead to 2030, you've got the Asian Games going to, to Saudi Arabia. Personally, if you go even further, look even further into the future, I foresee Saudi Arabia possibly in conjunction with its neighbours will bid for the Olympic Games. And so we've had this thing about a summer World Cup in Qatar or winter World Cup in Qatar, should I say. It may well be that as we we get into the late 20s and early 30s, we could potentially be looking at a Saudi Arabian Winter Olympics. In your answer, I think it was really, really interesting. You, 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 You hammered home the point that uh, the state, the state dictates a lot of this stuff. So in this type of country, how do you ever prove separation? How, 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 does, how does, to bring it up to speed with, the, I think, the chapter that most of our listeners will be aware of, and that, of course, is the, the long saga of um, public investment fund, the, the sovereign wealth fund buying Newcastle United, where we get to this point at the end where the Premier League says, no, we're absolutely certain there is separation there. How can you ever possibly have separation in a country like Saudi Arabia? This is one of the things I think that that um, that people have got to got to appreciate about the the growing prominence, dare I say, even rise of Asian nations. So whether we're talking about Saudi Arabia or Qatar or United Arab Emirates or China as another example, or as we've seen over the recent over recent weeks, Russia, it's actually very very difficult to to distinguish between what is what is state and what is non-state. And I think the reality is, is, is in Saudi Arabia, most of the leading organizations, if they're not state owned, then certainly they, they, they have state investment in them. Um, and if they don't have state investment in them, to be able to function, they have to have a good relationship with the state. That, that's just a simple fact, a simple rule. And, and 
I think my view of the Newcastle United case, but I think my view generally, obviously we don't know what's going to happen at Chelsea, but there will be other such episodes too, is, is that you know, many governing bodies, particularly in Europe, are making this up as, we go, as they go along. It's, it's very arbitrary. And, and they're drawing red lines where they think it's convenient to draw red lines. Now, that's helpful. It allows you to deal with situations in the short term and create some clarity or create some, um, you know, some justification for making decisions. But of course, if you're locked into this series of short-term decisions, eventually there will be a contradiction or there will be a conflict. And I think, you know, let's imagine that there is Saudi Arabian ownership at Chelsea. That's, that's an, in my view, that is an issue because very clearly the proposed Saudi Arabian bidder for Chelsea is in, if you consider the network of Saudi Arabian sport or the network of Saudi Arabian investments, or the network of Saudi Arabian economic interests, there is no doubt that the public investment fund at Newcastle United and the pr- proposed bidder at Chelsea, they are connected. So it then becomes a case of where do you draw your red line? To draw lines arbitrarily in the short term might be expedient and, and might help you make a decision. But in the long term, it's unsustainable because it creates conflicts of interest. And so it is not inconceivable that you know by the end of this week or by the, by the end of next week or the end of March or whenever it's going to be, there could potentially be a conflict of interest there. It is unclear at this point what the Premier League will do about this. An interesting comparison, I mean, I, I, I think we were led to believe several years ago that, that, the, that the Premier League had enlisted the help of forensic accountants to, um, to try and establish whether there were connections between uh, some of the Chinese owners uh, in, in, in English Premier League football. Because again, here is another country, China, with heavy state involvement, heavy state presence. The Premier League tell us that there wasn't any evidence uh, of connection, but the reality is, is, is because of the state presence, there were connections. You know, you can draw red lines to arbitrarily um, make decisions, uh, but ultimately, this is unsustainable. It needs it needs to be better thought through, more strategic, and and minimise the possibility of of contradictions and conflict. Yeah, no, I'm on the same page as you, Simon. It it, it strikes me as very interesting that this Saudi media company this this beard in fact there's there's another one that's come up over over overnight almost um a, a guy from horse racing world called zidane um who, who's another saudi bidder perhaps um and i and i do i do wonder it was an early theory that that was that was posited that um wouldn't this be a really really good way of proving the separation between PIF and Newcastle United, if you could somehow show that, no, there are loads and loads of wealthy Saudis that want to buy football clubs and it's not all driven by the state. And maybe that's maybe that's been achieved already at that point. But related to that was, was the sort of the, oh, and by the way, Sheffield United is owned by a wealthy Saudi. Do, do, you, do, you, see, do, you, do you see some merit in that, that, that perhaps it is entirely possible for an independently wealthy Saudi that who who you know for the reasons we've discussed about the wealth of the nation can buy a Premier League football club and not be connected to the state. I mean, obviously, in the in the in the case of uh, Sheffield United, when Sheffield United was in the Premier League, there were no other Saudi Arabian football clubs in the Premier League, and currently we are in the situation where you have no other Saudi Arabian football clubs in the Premier League. Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Sheffield United will, will get promoted, so you've then got Sheffield, Newcastle, and Chelsea together, and that would 
be a, a very interesting scenario. I don't think the Saudi Arabian government sits in a room and says, okay, we've got three investors here. Let's let's put them strategic. Let's let's put one in Newcastle, one in Sheffield, and one in Chelsea. And you know, let's see how they so it's it's not that coordinated, it's not that orchestrated, it's not that deliberate. Very often they don't talk to each other and it's an entirely accidental, but nevertheless, the con- connection exists. So the, the bidder at Chelsea is somebody who is linked to members of the royal family who in turn are linked to the public investment fund, which you know, obviously in turn is linked to Newcastle United. And and you might say, well, there, there are investors here who are friends of friends of friends who invest but you know, clearly there are rules in place in the Premier League around ownership and you can't own more than 9.9% of one club if you own 50% of another. And, 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 and yet what we have here is, is almost like a network effect. And I think that's the crucial thing. There is a network of investors and these networks are networks of investors are connected. And one of the nodes in the network is the Saudi Arabian state. And when you then begin to ask yourself, well, what is the Saudi Arabian state? Well, this is, you know, it's not Boris Johnson sat in Downing Street and then you've got the Queen sat in Buckingham Palace. You know, it's essentially the royal family is the state. The royal family is the government. So you are talking about people who probably meet each other fairly regularly. You're talking about people who are members of the same family, maybe members of the same royal family. It could actually be, notwithstanding what I've just said, it could actually be these people know each other very well. They meet on a very regular basis. They do coordinate their decision making. and. There is also the possibility that they want to make mischief. As you've alluded to this, Matt, already, that they want to make mischief. You know, they, they, they want to deliberately test the limits to the Premier League ownership and, and directors um, test by you know, effectively putting up a rival at Chelsea that will demonstrate once and for all that separation between um, between Newcastle United and PIF. But it could also be that, that Saudi Arabian, the Saudi Arabian government is seeking to, 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 how can I put this, um, accentuate and project its, its power to the British government, which is basically, you want our money, then you've got to do as we say. And, and, and certainly that was my reading of the Saudi Arabia, PIF, Newcastle United episode, is the British government did get involved. And there was a bottom line there. Do you want our money? Yes or no. If you want our money, then you're going to have to do certain things. So you know, I think that there is an element of, of power projection in all of this as well just one, one last quick one then um given everything we've been discussing about saudi arabia and sport and you know we, we i think we've we've hinted at qatar and uae and of course that brings in man, man city and, and paris saint germain do you think football and i'm going to sort of use that term very loosely like football you lot out there decision makers are going to learn anything from this abramovich episode uh, from the struggle they had with PIF and Newcastle United and, and, and do something about those red lines, those arbitrary red lines you talked about and actually have a really, really hard think about, no, look, guys, we actually need to get some proper rules nailed down here or certainly some criteria. You know, what are we going to do around these separation issues? We should, but we won't. And, and the reason that I say that is, is you, you take Saudi Arabia, you take Qatar, you take Abu Dhabi, you take China, you take Russia. These are countries that are thinking very, very long and hard about how they engage with sport. And they're creating policy and strategy at government level to decide you know, what they spend, how they spend, with whom they spend. 
the British government in particular, but I think Western governments more generally, got a very laissez-faire view of the world. So there is no, no sense at all of, of regulatory authorities intervening to, pre to prevent you know, things that we don't like actually happening. And you know, before you know it, there's Saudi Arabia at Newcastle United. And really, you know, what opportunity did any of us get to, to, to try and stop that? It just went through. And, and you know, again, with Chelsea, with, with going back to Abramovich in 2004, and, and I, do, I don't lay the blame just at the door of the, the current conservative government, because I think the, the, the Labour government of the 2000s was, was as culpable as, as um, the current government is. But certainly the current government is... Is, is very hands-off in, in terms of policy and strategy in football and, and, and very hands-off in terms of where these red lines should be drawn. You know, very populist, very arbitrary, driven more by expediency rather than a, than a set of principles or morals. And I guess you know, I, I talk about principles and morals there is as a community, and I do genuinely believe in this, so fans and, and governing bodies and clubs and owners and sponsors and TV companies and journalists and academics, as a community, what do we want to protect and where do we want to draw our red lines? And I think what should happen moving, from, moving forward from here is, is there has to be a way for us all to discuss these things and, and identify as a country or as a continent even what we want for the future of our football. Because if we don't, you know, as soon as uh, as soon as whatever it is that is a whether whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine or you know concerns about Saudi Arabia, as soon as these things start to dissipate, once the money reappears, you know, as we know, football is really cost intensive business it's a really cost intensive industry you got to pay players their wages and, and, and their transfer fees so you know clubs are always looking at turnover they're always looking at revenues and if somebody from somewhere in the world even if we don't like that country you know comes along and says i'll give you a huge amount of money clubs will accept it what we you know what we've got to do is are we happy with that or do we want to do something about it and i think my view is we have to do something about it Someone, I think there's a degree course in that subject. Geopolitics one before it was before Christmas. Geopolitics of sport two is after Christmas. Oh, okay, well there you go. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's something for, for your students to look forward to. Yeah, cool. Thanks very much for your time. As All ever. All right. Cheers, Matt. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Submissive bids to become the new owner of Chelsea Football Club are being assessed. And as we reported on The Athletic, they're likely to fetch the highest price ever paid for a sports team after more than 20 parties made bids. Chelsea Pitch Owners is the company that holds the freehold of Stamford Bridge Stadium and the name Chelsea FC. I'm joined by the chair of Chelsea Pitch Owners, Chris Isaacs. So, Chris, I'll start off with a very general question. And, and we always do this on the podcast. We, we can't assume too much knowledge. We have, we have listeners all over the place. So explain the history, the potted history, if you like, of the... Uh, of the Chelsea pitch owners? I think it's unique, quite honestly, certainly in as far as the UK is concerned in, in professional sporting setup. I don't, I'm not aware of any other model like this. It goes back to the 90s and it's, and it's the brainchild of one Ken Bates, who at the time when he was running Chelsea in a very difficult financial set of circumstances, there was danger of the, of the, the club being bought out and the ground being taken over for redevelopment. And uh, Ken wisely... Uh, came up with a plan to separate out the footballing side from the freehold and created a company eventually which became Chelsea Pitch Owners, uh, which was then put out for sale to fans to buy shares in. So it's the first example of its type where the fans, uh, through Chelsea Pitch Owners, own the freehold of Stamford Bridge. And I understand that Chelsea Pitch Owners own more than just the freehold to the pitch. What, what else do they own? Well, under the terms of the lease, if Chelsea Football Club decided to go and play somewhere else, then, of course, they're perfectly entitled to do that, but they wouldn't be able to take the name Chelsea FC with them. Um, so there's a sort of uh, a, a power of veto, if you like, over that. I'm not sure it will come to that, but that's the, the situation as far as the lease is concerned, yes. And how many members, how many people are a part of Chelsea Pitch Owners? There's approximately 14,000 individual shareholders um, some right from the very start, back in 1993 when it started. And those 14,000 shareholders come from approximately 44, at the last count, different countries around the world. So we have shareholders in North America, South America, Australia, China, India, all over Europe as well. So it's a, it's a broad and diverse base. And how does it actually work? I mean, how much is a share? Is there a, is there a, a waiting list? How often do you issue shares? First of all, there's absolutely no waiting list. So you can buy a share anytime. So please come and buy some more. And obviously the last three weeks have seen un unprecedented levels of share applications. So the basic share uh, is £100 to £300 plus for the, for the top of the range package. Can you explain to, to our listeners, perhaps the last time the Chelsea pitch owners became a story and that was around the time that Abramovich thought about moving the club. I think it was to Earl's Court at the time, although there have been other ideas and I get them confused. But I think it was Earl's Court and the Chelsea Beach owners had a vote, right? How, how would you, how would, I, am I on the right lines there? Pretty much so. I think um, there, was a, there was a desire from the club to, to take over 
Chelsea pitch owners to have ownership of 100% of the, of the, the club and the ground and the whole thing. The mechanic to do that is to acquire a 75% majority at an EGM, uh, which you're going to do by buying shares and acquiring voting rights. And so there was a huge campaign, say no at the time, and there was a huge campaign by a number of people that wanted to, to go down that route. As it happens, the majority of 75% wasn't achieved, and so the, the motion was defeated. And uh, since then, uh, relationships have, have been up and down. They went back up to a to a high again a few years later when CPO was uh, was pleased to collaborate on the redevelopment project that eventually got Shell, but uh, got almost to the final hurdle. So there was... There's good times and bad times in any business relationship. Well, of course, and, and that redevelopment project, I think, is, is is one of the key narratives around this takeover story. So let's 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 do that because yeah. I think it is really interesting. So obviously, it's a story I've covered over the years. This 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 desire, this obvious natural desire, to do something with Stanford Bridge, you know, which is I know much loved and cherished by you, I'm sure. But I think, would you agree, amongst your now peer group of clubs? Is on the small side and the old and the tire side. Would that would that be would that be fair? Yeah, I think it's clear that the best team in London deserves the best stadium in London, which we don't currently have. And and from a financial business point of view, match day revenues could you know could be severely increased and benefit from another twenty thousand people coming through the door every game. So that's it's an obvious an obvious project to try and get involved with if uh, if that fits in with a with a new owner's plan, which I'm the, the people that. Uh, are currently on the on the roster all appear to be pro development, which is great. In the past, the sort of story has been that the site is cramped, it's challenging. Property in London's by, by its nature very, very expensive. You know, you're not going to get compulsory purchase orders to start knocking things down. You're hemmed in by a train line, all these, all these things, right? And you, your club is not the only one that have been through these these challenges. And it was often put to me, the club has to move. Redos have to move, Wormwood Scrubs, Battersea, et cetera, was sort of suggested to me as, as ideas. And I, and I know that's hard for, for Chelsea fans, and it has been hard for Chelsea fans to sort of agree with. Do you feel that that is old hat now, that now Abramovich has proven, certainly in terms of the plans, that it can be done, stadium technology is improved, you don't need to, you know, I don't want to send this to an engineering podcast, but, but you now you can go up cheaper safer you don't need such a big footprint is it do, do you think that the future of chelsea football club is at stanford bridge personally i do um i think as, as you said it's been proved that you can you can squeeze a sixty thousand seater stadium in there the downside is that you'd have to move out for a number of years to to, to eventually achieve that um but i think the um the longer term benefit to the community and to everybody associated with the club, be it fans or the people that work there or whatever, is is best served if possible by staying there. And that's the whole reason for the existence of Chelsea pitch owners at the end of the day. Well, I'm glad you raised that that sort of point that if it is going to be a rebuild on the current site, you're going to need a home for a while. And then there you have this sort of, you know, this, this cost issue. Yep. Whereas if you do build somewhere else, you can you don't need to rent somewhere. What's your gut feeling? I'm asking you now to sort of, you know, you're you're you know that you know you know this territory better than me, literally territory better than I do. In five years' time, where where is Chelsea going to be playing? I think it depends on on the appetite of the new owners to redevelop and the speed in which they want to redevelop. They may they may decide that for three or four years they can live with the current model and know that they have to invest to keep the thing going for that period. And then at a, when the time is right, then make that move. It could be that the current inflation in the building industry comes down a bit, or there may be more cost-effective ways to do it. You know, 
um, advances in engineering are happening all the time. So what was right in 2016 for the at Brownridge Cathedral, um, you might be able to do for a fraction of the price in five years' time. So, difficult question. Yeah, no, sure, sure. Let's get on to Abramovich then. Can you encapsulate it, how you feel about the last month? Uh, I can speak personally about how I feel for the last month. Obviously, representing Chelsea pitch owners with a broad church of opinion, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of all 14,000 members. But uh, from a purely personal point of view, it's, it's clear that the last 19 years have seen unprecedented levels of success the pitch and the club has, has re-energized off the pitch as well so you can't you can't ignore that you can try and put it into context context with things that are happening in other parts of the world which are you know some terrible things happening which is which are unforgivable but within the context of, of the football club i think it's a sad time that we're going through with, to to see the end of an era that we've experienced with so much joy there's no there's no asterisks on it as as other fans are sort of pointing out there's not it, it it's not tainted in any way by the fact he's now sanctioned for me personally no but that's to say that's my personal opinion okay so in terms of the the, the sales process do you expect it to go to a to one of these these American sports entrepreneurs? It's always difficult, isn't it? There's a there's the mantra that the best deals are the ones that you never hear about. So that it maybe there's something knocking about which is going to come completely from left field that, that we that we don't know. I think there are I think there's enough from what I read, and I'm only reading the same stuff that everybody else is reading. I think there's enough traction from some of the UK-based bids to make those attractive enough for the club obviously i'm not making that decision and i don't have to make the decision and to be honest i'm pretty glad that i don't i don't think it's necessarily going to be a us-led consortium but that's my opinion what would an ideal um, chelsea owner look like for you what, what would be what would be perfect okay not perfect what would, what would be pretty good the perfect characteristics for me would be an owner or group of owners that showed i don't think you could replicate the same level, the amount of passion and commitment that we've had before, but somewhere approaching that level of passion and commitment, understanding the club, understanding the community, um, and from from the CPO point of view, an absolute desire to redevelop the stadium at some point and make the stadium the best in London. I think one of the reasons that many of us journalists are writing about these American sports entrepreneurs, it, it's not because we're making it up, right? It's because we do talk to people. And what we're hearing is track record. And if you look at what these American sports entrepreneurs have done, certainly the front runners, and I'm talking about guys like Todd Bewley, the Ricketts family, I'll ask you a follow up on them in a minute, um, Harris Blitzer, et cetera, is that they have experience. They have, they can show, they can point to something they have done, right? Bought a sports franchise, we've run it. Some of us have won things, but we have developed a property. You know, we, we turn that into a thing. Does that seem crucial to you? track record i think it's a very positive aspect to any bid coming in on the flip side you could argue that if there was a, a way to maintain the current management team within the football club and just had new owners overseeing it and giving them free reign to continue the work they were doing then is track record as important as perhaps has been made out that's a fair point do you see that as particularly desirable this sort of sense of continuity you know if if whoever wins this contest and gets approved by the UK government were to make a sort of some sort of commitment or certain some type of effort, perhaps, to keep someone like Mourinho Gravisky, would that would that play well with Chelsea fans? I'm pretty sure it would. Yes, I'm pretty sure. I think continuity is the is the most important thing 
everything else around the club is working fantastically well. The, the, the squad and, and, and the coach have done a brilliant job in keeping things ticking over for the last five games since it all kicked off, if you like. Um, there's a real danger that could have gone pear-shaped. But I think they've shown real character and resilience to keep that bit going. And that's, that continuity is so important over the next few weeks and months or so as there will be continued uncertainty for sure. Well, I'm going to ask you another another tricky one, which I think you're probably going to have to put your personal hat back on for a minute. And that's around the Ricketts bid. So the Ricketts, for anyone that's not followed this story closely, the Ricketts family um, own the Chicago Cubs. They're backed by a, by a very, very... Um, very, very. I mean, they're pretty wealthy, but they're they're backed by someone even richer in terms of Ken Griffin. So they they have a, a compelling bid in terms of that track record, parts and money. So they provide a bit of certainty, etc., etc., etc. They they have unfortunately a, a a massive PR problem, and that's some very um, unsavoury comments from their dad. The, the Ricketts family are literally a family. They're sort of four or five siblings, and their dad, uh, Joe. Um, made some appalling comments in some emails a few years ago about um, Islam and 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 other controversies. Now they they are struggling. They are struggling to get over that. What what is your view of that? Do they do they seem like unsuitable owners for Chelsea? At face value, if I read correctly, they have done a good job with the Chicago Cubs, and they are smart business people. So there's two fairly positive things there. The other parts of it, I, it's difficult to say. This, the, the important thing about Chelsea is about its community and its and its desire for inclusion, equality, opportunity, all those things. And I think any owners that don't recognise that and 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 do things the right way um, to make sure those things are at top of their agenda is going to have a problem. Speaking more generally, Chris, just as a, as a sort of a final thought or two, then um, do you feel? That in this process, which of course has been really expedited and everyone says it's unprecedented, and it is. Um, do you feel that you guys have been consulted at all? Do you do you feel you have input to this? Have you spoken, for example, to any of the people that I've mentioned, Bewley and Ricketts, etc.? I think in, in a situation like this, as a stakeholder, it's our it's our duty to try and consult with as many of the potential bidders as we possibly can. Some of those through geography are you know it's difficult to do, um, but. I think both Chelsea pitch owners and also the Chelsea supporters trust who I give a big shout out to for the fantastic work they've been doing um, to uh, to raise their agenda. I think it's in, in both our interests to do as much as we can to at least have some contact with the potential bidders to get to make sure that they're aware of our existence to start with and also what's important to us in terms of um, you know, we, you know, our involvement with the, the, the Crouch Review and all those things. There are some some big issues that need to be fronted up before we get too much further. So yeah, we're doing we're doing what we can with as many of the bidders that that we can get in front of. Yeah, and, that, and that's actually happening, is it? You're, you you know you you are actually having conversations with these people's representatives. Yes, we are. Yeah. Do you feel that you have spoken now to? The front runners, all of them. Um, I don't think we spoke to all of them. We've done our best to speak to all of them, and some are just choosing to keep a lower profile than others, which is perfectly understandable. As I say, some people like to conduct their business in the public eye, and some people don't. I can't, you know, I'm not the legislator for that. All right. Well, look, all the best with it. Um, Thank thanks you. very much for speaking to us, and uh, I, I wholeheartedly back your 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 message. Buy a share. So buy a share. Sounds, absolutely. It sounds, it sounds great. If I supported your club, I would buy a share. <laughs> thanks very much. I might for your buy time. one anyone. Good man. All right. right. Take care.
That's it. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.